around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Nadine Badu, Features Editor on New Civil Engineer. And joining me is Satiris Canaris, who, as some of you might already know, will be taking over from me as Features Editor when I leave NCE. So hello, Satiris. Hello. Hiya. So brilliant. Now, in this episode, we'll be discussing how EDF Energy's proposed Sizewell C project is approaching biodiversity and sustainability to build on the biodiversity that the existing power station has already developed at the site. Joining us is Sizewell C Consents Manager, Stephen Mannings, and Head of Regional External Affairs and Development, Tom McGarry. Stephen works with environmental stakeholders such as Natural England and the RSPB to ensure the measures being put in place for Saswell C will mitigate any impact. Stephen also uh, designed the Altherst Farm Scheme, which has created a wildlife habitat adjacent to the Saswell Estate. Tom has the eight-year public consultation for Sizewell C, ensuring that local communities have their say on the project and can help shape the plans which are currently under examination by the Planning Inspectorate. Hello and welcome to you both. Hi. Hi, nice to be here. Brilliant. So firstly, can you tell us a bit about the proposed Sizewell C project and why you believe nuclear energy will play such a crucial role in the UK's low-carbon future? Thanks, Nadine. Well, I'll take the the second part of that question first, and uh, that relates, of course, to the to the need for nuclear within our electricity generating system. Um, we, at the moment in the UK, can rely on nuclear to make about seventeen to twenty percent of the mix of electricity that's being generated. When I first started w- working on the Sizewell C project back in twenty ten, if you looked on any average day, really, in terms of the mix of generating sources, coal was certainly king. Over 50% of our electricity was generated by burning coal. And gas uh, was second with around 30%. Now, in the space of 10 years, with the um, great strides that have been made in in energy efficiency, which still need to go further, and also um, with uh, phasing out coal, and, of course, the... Uh, more renewables in the system as well. We are in a place now where we do have more renewable and low carbon um, uh, generating sources within the mix, which is which is great. But rather than coal being king, it's now gas. So we're still burning fossil fuels. And that's precisely the thing that we need to start avoiding. Um, and while we have started, we really need to pick up the pace. Now, Nuclear power, as I say, would uh, generate about 17 to 20% of the mix. That's great, but unfortunately a number of our ageing nuclear power stations, along with ageing gas and coal power stations, are going to be going out of um, operation within this decade. In fact, between 2010 to 2030, 
Over 50% of our coal, gas and nuclear power stations are going to close down. We need to replace that. Now, all the energy efficiency measures in the world are not going to stop the demand for electricity growing because more and more of our transport and our heating systems are electrified. So we're going to see this huge growth in demand for electricity, whether it's electric cars, uh, for example, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, etc., etc. We need all of that to have a source of power that's low carbon and safe. That is what nuclear has provided as, if you like, the baseload over the um, over the last um, uh, half century or so. And now we need to be building on that. We need to be replacing those nuclear power stations that are going to be going out of commissioning and we need to be uh, transferring to what we would call a newable future, a mix of nuclear providing the baseload, the dependable amount of electricity alongside, of course, renewables. We need renewables to continue to grow and by having that baseload of new nuclear, what we'll be doing is providing the space for renewables to grow and, of course, further research and development into storage um, and other technologies that can take us forward to the net zero future. That is a legal requirement in the UK. We need to decarbonise um, and have a, a new, new low carbon economy. Sizewell C is going to be absolutely integral to the fight to get to net zero, to tackle climate change. And also, as we'll discuss further in this podcast, new nuclear is helpful also in in the biodiversity crisis as well because we will be generating a huge amount of electricity from quite a small area of land and that means then we've got space around it in order to do a lot of exciting work that Steve in particular has been immersed in in terms of uh, creating uh, the natural habitat and the biodiversity that can thrive around nuclear power stations. And so can you tell us a bit about the, the actual estate where you hope that Sizewell C will be built? I mean, it's more than 60 years since work started on Sizewell A, and some might consider that development to have been negative for the environment. But obviously you believe it has had a positive impact on biodiversity in the area. So can you explain a bit more about that? Let, 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 me, let, me, let me take that, Nadine, if, if, if I can. Just building on what, on what Tom just said. I mean, one of the, uh, one of the big positives um, really around, uh, about nuclear is its small uh, footprint compared to other renewable technologies. So, I mean, it produces around a thousand times uh, more energy per hectare than solar, for example, uh, and, and, and three times that actually compared to offshore wind. So uh, it's very efficient in, 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 that, in that sense. And, and in contrast to that, our estate at Sizewell is, is, is huge, actually. You know, it extends um, way beyond the operational sort of power station uh, site. All, all the way up to, uh, to to Minsmere in the north and to, and to Leyston, the nearest town uh, in, in the west. So it covers about 600 hectares. Only a very small proportion of that is actually used for, for nuclear generation. And so, you know, we've been, I mean, we've been busy for a number of years now, uh, kind of rewilding that, um, that, that, that estate, as much of that estate as we, as we can outside the area that will, that will require temporarily to build Sizewell C. So that's starting to deliver on some of those uh, biodiversity benefits, um, you know, early, early doors, early, early on, uh, getting a bit of a head start, really, and we're looking to build on that going forwards. The Sizewell A began four decades of generating low-carbon electricity in 1966, and the area and where it was built the uh, area of outstanding natural beauty wasn't actually designated as an area of outstanding natural beauty until 1970. So you had Sizewell A generating electricity within an area that was designated later on as an area of outstanding natural beauty. 
1970, 156 square miles of the Suffolk coast and heaths got that designation. And, you know, the beauty of the Suffolk coast and the thriving biodiversity has remained constant despite decades of change within it, around it, and also the construction of Sizewell B, Britain's first pressurised water reactor, started 17 years later after that designation. So it was the first to be built within an AONB. Uh, Sizewell C will not be, it's, it's following on from Sizewell B. These have been a very, very important areas of employment and absolutely vital uh, to uh, our electricity supplies in the UK. Um, so there are still common concerns and misconceptions about the potential environmental impact of delivering the Sizewell C project. What are the main ones? So, yeah, I mean, you're right. There, there were a lot of uh, concerns and, and, and misconceptions. Um, you know, a lot of those concerns are very genuine ones, uh, actually. I mean, Sizewell, you know, is in a very special place. There's no doubt about that. You know, there's a lot of sensitive habitats around the site. Um, you know, not least Minsmere, as I mentioned earlier on to the to the north so you know there are sensitivities there are there are constraints um i I think probably the key ones um i think the key ones we've just come to the end of the examination one of the key themes in the examination really was a concern around the design of a of a bridge of a temporary and a permanent bridge that will connect our main uh, sort of construction site where the power station will sit with our sort of temporary construction area um to, to the north and that bridge would need to cross the neck of a sensitive site, a a marshland, it's a designated site. So there's concern that that might uh, impede the movement of um, of wildlife basically in either direction under the bridge um so that was a that was a key that was a key area i I think there've been concerns also around um the design of the of the sea defenses and the impacts that that might have on affecting um uh sort of the coastal processes um up, up and down the coast that could have uh you know, uh, effects on some of those designations um, in neighbouring beaches. And, and I think, um, you know, concerns around uh, the impact of, you know, l- looking for- forward really to operations, um, concerns around the impact that the cooling water system uh, will will have on fisheries in particular. I mean, you know, the cooling water system takes in vast amounts of, of, of water, 125 cubic meters a second it's huge <laughs> uh, amount of uh, amount of water so those are the sorts of concerns that we've been grappling with um uh working through with our stakeholders with our, our own experts o- over the past 10 years or, or, or so um you know in order to uh you know uh, in order to design out those sorts of uh, issues and, and and mitigate those impacts that we can't avoid completely and i would add to that having you know worked with local communities and parish councils and so on over you know many years now while uh steve obviously has had a very clear focus on these um on on the the issues right to the technical level this is a very beautiful part of the world um it's really appreciated by you know lots of people who 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 enjoy nature and enjoy the access and amenity to it lots of people retire to the area um to embrace it and to enjoy it and we have to be sensitive to that. The Suffolk Heritage Coast is a is a very um, beautiful place. It's very peaceful. It's very tranquil. And while it's all in good me saying, well, you know, there have been two major infrastructure projects on that part of the coast before. You know, it it, it you know it's not exactly going to be everybody embracing a third, um, and that is absolutely understood. So we have to have careful regard to the lessons learned from the past. And much of the feedback was also about things like, can we still have access 
to the beach in order to walk the dogs, to enjoy the walk up to Dunwich Heath, to be able also, um, in particular as well, uh, you know, are there going to be other areas um, where the diversions to paths and so on and so forth will will keep us close to nature? And, you know, a real insistence that, you know, what you're doing here is going to be disruptive and you have to make sure that you avoid that disruption as much as possible, that you limit it as much as possible, you mitigate for it if you can't do that, and you compensate for it ultimately if there is um, if, if, if there is no other route. And that's one of the things that Steve and his team have been absolutely, you know, really diligent in doing over the years in terms of getting compensatory habitat established early. And while it's been established, like Althurst Farm, we still don't know if Sizewell Sea will go ahead at this particular point, but that habitat has been created. And as a result, we've converted, for example, over 150 hectares of arable land into grassland, which is equivalent to about six times the area of the local Thornless Mere. And there's already been a lot that has been done, as that example shows, in order to try and make sure that we are going to you know, limit those impacts as much as we possibly can. And how are you working with stakeholders and the local community to help alleviate the concerns that they have around the project? Let, let me let me pick up on the stakeholders um, first of first of all. So yeah, we've been working really closely with uh, with a with a number of stakeholders um, from you know regulators, uh, local authorities, non-statutory uh, bodies that have um, you know a, a lot of. Of, of expertise in in their areas uh, as well. People like uh, the uh, the local wildlife trust, for example, and the uh, the RSPB, obviously Natural uh, England, the Environment Agency, those sorts of bodies. Um, so you know we yeah we've been um, we've been engaging uh, closely with uh, with all of those parties since the very inception of the of the project. Actually, um, one of the first things we we, we did was to um, was to put together. Uh, something called an, an evidence uh, plan. Um, it was the first of its kind, actually, for a major major project. It um, uh, it was um, uh, an initiative, really, to um, to get environmental to ensure that you know environmental considerations are put at the heart of major you know complex projects like like ourselves, and to uh, you know bring stakeholders together to ensure that we have that knowledge that's feeding into that process uh, right at the beginning. Because you know a lot of what we do actually in the design process is um, is actually you know, um, is avoid impacts, actually. It's not doing things rather than doing things. Um, and we need to understand what it is we're trying to avoid in order to do that. So um, so it's a hugely, um, um, you know, powerful, actually, uh, exercise to um, basically develop a roadmap, really, for the uh, pretty intensive and, uh, and you know, prolonged, actually, environmental assessment programme that has uh, been carried out uh, hand in hand, hand in glove, really, with the design process. So, so yeah, that, that's basically how we've been doing it. And, you know, and that's continued right up until, well, yesterday, <laughs> actually, um, uh, uh, upon, you know, we're nearly at the end of the examination phase now. And, um, you know, inevitably, there have been issues that have, uh, you know, that have had to be worked through concerns um, throughout that examination. And we've been, you know, responsive to that and working very, very closely with, with stakeholders, statutory and non-statutory, in order to resolve those outstanding concerns as far as we have. And I have to say, we've made some really good progress uh, over the last um, you know, number of months to, to that effect. Well, I touched on um, the, the views of, of many within local communities and um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's important to listen and, and, and to understand. But I think it's also important to reflect on, we, we do have a track record in being good stewards of the estate. There's, um, the estate itself is made up of 600 hectares, about two, two and a half square miles of the area of outstanding natural beauty is under our ownership in, in the Sizewell estate. Um, Sizewell A and B at present make up about 6% of that or 0.09% of the AONB as a whole um, of that designated area. So it, it, it's important that we have that sense of perspective, but also it's in a very, as I said, beautiful part of it. So we have worked with close neighbours like the RSPB, Minsmere and indeed Suffolk Wildlife Trust over the years in the management and stewardship of our 600 hectare estate. And we, you know, have managed uh, biodiversity in that area um, very sensitively um, and, um, and with our partners. Now, as we look to the future, that estate has grown because we've acquired more land for compensatory habitat. And we're working with organisations like Wild East to look to the future, to look to the vision of the overall estate beyond, obviously, the licensed area. Once it's all built, all of the areas that we're using for construction and so on will be returned to a uh, state befitting the Suffolk Coast and Heaths area of outstanding natural beauty. So working with organisations like Wild East means we are exploring rewilding now, creating green corridors up and down the East Suffolk coast um, and indeed looking into other elements like sustainable farming as well. So ultimately our aim will be to enhance the local environment beyond that where it's at at present while also doing everything we can to mitigate the disruption during the years of construction. And so earlier you touched on the importance of learning lessons from from the past. So what are some of the key lessons that you are taking from Sizewell B and Hinkley's approach to biodiversity, both in terms of things that went really well and perhaps things that didn't go quite so well? I, I think as far as Sizewell B is concerned, you know, it's um, it's a beautiful, well, some people think it's a beautiful looking uh, power station. I certainly uh, do. Um, but um, it was actually one of my first jobs um, when I left university, uh, working on the tail end of uh, Sizewell B. And um, I, I think, you know, immersing in the detail a little bit, just for a moment, if you indulge me, one of the things we, we, we did while there that we're repeating um, at Sizewell C is... Um, it's being careful not to uh, to do everything we can not to affect the the water balance associated with the marsh next door. So you know we have to create huge uh, excavations uh, in order to uh, build the foundations um, for the for the power station and all of the underground sort of um, structures and so on. Um, so um, it's a huge engineering task actually to to create a, a cut off wall that's keyed like fifty meters or so down into the top of the clay to. Uh, Basically, create a you know a um, a wall within which we can do water that that uh, that void, if you like, without uh, without uh, drawing water from the uh, from the neighbouring marshes. So we're repeating that. Um, it's a really important part of our mitigation strategy. Actually, one of the things we didn't do though with Sizewell B was um, was think about um, what the impact of uh, kind of loading the platform would be as we as we build the plat- platform on, on, upon which the power station sits, because it's you know the marsh is quite soft. Uh, um, there's a there's a lateral spread basically of um, of, of that of that material slightly, which um which you know which 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 probably did interfere a, a little bit with the hydrology of that marsh, really local uh, to the around the fringes of the of the station. So this time we've cut that out completely. Going back to the sort of impact avoidance sort of piece I, I mentioned earlier on by 
by uh, actually incorporating um, uh, an engineered sort of cut-off wall, um, a, a sheet pile barrier wall along the toe of the embankment. And that just uh, forms a very hard sort of protective barrier, basically, between the edge of the permanent development and, um, and, and, the, and the very important designated marsh that would be retained ne- next door. So that's the detail, if you like. If I can sort of lift things up a little bit more, though, to the sort of uh, the bigger picture, of, uh, I, I think the main thing, for me, is that we're much more progressive these days. We always like to think we're progressive, don't we? I think we're much more progressive uh, these days than we were then. So our ambition is not now to mitigate um, as the, you know, the raison d'etre of what we're doing. It's to, uh, it's to avoid uh, impacts where we can, as, as Tom mentioned earlier on, but to also go above and beyond and to deliver benefits. So it's not just about uh, mitigating impacts. It's about delivering positive uh, benefits uh, uh, as well. And so, you know, th- I think that's evidence from the from the work that, you know, we've we, we, we've touched on all, already in, in terms of the rewild, rewilding within the uh, within the estate. And, and hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that sort of later on in the in the in the discussion. I, I, I would also add um, that uh, we have learned the lessons <clears throat> in, in terms of the construction of size will be, particularly in, 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 in light of better understanding around coastal processes, the sea deliveries to size will be, the infrastructure that was built, the jetty, in order to take uh, numerous deliveries. And of course, the aggregate was uh, pumped up the beach and so on. Actually, that activity did have an impact on the on the coastline to the south of Thorpe Ness. Our understanding over uh, the years since then of constant monitoring and uh, looking at all sorts of um, you know offshore activity, wave monitoring, and uh, constant also um, uh, drone footage of the coastline, and understanding our impacts means that the design of the infrastructure this time have a uh, is very much designed to make sure that uh, the sensitive part of the coastline to the south of Thorpe Ness is very much at the forefront of our thinking, and in terms of the design of sea deliveries um, with beach landing facilities now. Um, as opposed to um, uh, hard set jetties. Further to that, at the time of size will be, they're also learning from size will A, of course, as well. And um, with size will B, we have a feature of uh, the the coastal defence and the defence of, of the overall site is uh, the northern mound. Uh, it's also dealt with visual aspects as well. Um, but the northern mound, uh, we had experts come down from the University of East Anglia. They went digging and cutting and so on, and uh, they took samples of all the flora and fauna and actually cultivated those over the decade while we were building size will be up in uh, in Norwich and then came down, replanted and so on. So everything you're seeing over that coastal uh, defence and something that looks obviously like you know in, in entirely natural of course is actually as a result of um it being uh, you know sampled grown planted in order to make sure that it you know it fits it fits with the character of uh, the, the the suffolk um, heritage coast our approach to the local community now as well i think it's it, it's part of this um what we're doing now is being um uh, particularly cognizant that people obviously associate living close to nature and uh, having tranquil uh, lives and so on with uh, the use of roads and transport as well. Very different to the construction of size will be is the fact that we do have a clear focus on demand management on local roads. So the provision of park and ride facilities, for example, getting people out of their private cars, reducing the amount of traffic on local roads. Back in the day, building size will be everybody, of course, drove to site. 
and I mean that's just that's just a significant amount of traffic into into the local area. So lots of things have changed, lots of different ways in which we're doing things now, very very much with the um, uh, with the environment and wildlife in mind. Let, let me just add one extra thing. Actually, just picking up on something that Tom Tom, Tom said. Um, so uh, actually, I mean a, a, a real step change actually from from when Size World B was built was is that I mean at, at that time you know I mean Size World B uh, sits very well where, where it is and um, you know uh, and, you know but I think I think a lot of those key decisions that were taken at that time were matters of expert judgment and we still we still need expert judgment obviously we deploy it quite a quite a lot don't we but um but those expert judgments now are much better informed by you know by modeling actually by an understanding of how the environment works and and how we would interact with the environment and how the environment interacts with us so you know picking up uh tom tom's point so transport you know we develop really quite powerful transport models to you know, give us and give our stakeholders uh, confidence that, um, you know, traffic will move in the way that we predict it will so that we can design the mitigation accordingly in terms of freight, the location of freight centres, the sizing of park and rides and so on. But that extends to across almost all areas of environment. We've had powerful models on looking at surface water changes, looking at groundwater, how those two things interact, coastal change, um, Tom mentioned, really, really powerful uh, models looking at um, at how that um, how that coastline might behave going going looking forward a hundred years, etc. That's designed really important to design our mitigation to maintain that protective beach uh, in front of the power station and in cooling. We we mentioned cooling earlier on. Um, really powerful, really really powerful models looking at how our uh, thermal plumes, so so the plumes of uh, of warm water that are released into the into into the into the North Sea, uh, how, how how they will interact um, with um, you know with the with the natural world with fisheries and, and so on. So so we have so all that all that adds up to um, you know a lot more confidence really around those uh, professional judgments that are that are made. So um, yeah, that's a significant change. And um, how will you go about mitigating the short-term impact during the construction phase? Are there any lessons to be learned from Hinkley here? From, Hink- from Hinkley Point C, you mean? It's, it's a difficult one, that, because, you know, uh, Hinkley Point C is, uh, you know, is, um, you know, it, like Sizewell, it, it, it has its uh, challenges, um, but all sites are different. So, you know, there's no, you know, we, we, so where... We're replicating the design of, uh, of Hinkley Point C, but where, you know, we've, you know, um, we've, uh, we've, uh, we've modified that design where we, where we need to in order to recognise the sense of place that we have, uh, you know, around us in, in, in Suffolk. So, so I think we, you know, we're carrying forward and using the same sort of uh, approaches, if you like, um, as, uh, as, as Hinkley, um, but, in, but in a different context, if you like. And I think the emphasis of, uh, of some of those impacts you know, it is really quite quite different. Obviously, there are traffic concerns at Hinkley, but they're completely different uh, to uh, to the way they manifest uh, uh, here. And so, our responses to uh, to that is, is is quite different. So, our strategies are different. So, it's a matter of the same but different, I suppose. Really, recognizing the different locations of of the of these uh, two very similar power stations. That's right, and it's important also to bear in mind that replication is very much about. Uh, well, first of all, achieving a first in um, 
the history of civil nuclear energy in um, in Britain, and that's to build the same thing twice. And of course, we get the efficiencies, cost efficiencies, and so on, and the lessons learned um, are, are applicable. But yes, these are very different areas, um, uh, geography, sites, and so on. But it's worth bearing in mind, yes, the plant design is fully replicated from Hinkley Point C, but the external kind of architectural design of some buildings has been adapted uh, to suit the setting of size we'll see within the AONB. So, you know, we had the Commission of Architecture and Built Environment coming to have a, a look. We looked at, you know, the way in which, uh, you know, un unlike at size will be where the dome is very much the uh, uh, main feature, if you like, um, architecturally of the building, the main um, aesthetic element here, the the more prominent buildings would be the turbine halls so we they, they will have a very different um uh, externality to that uh, at hinkley and all of this is described in 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 the design and access statement that we've uh, we've submitted with the, with the application there are some differences but these are about you know adapting to site specific conditions so for example the the main ones of these are the cooling water pump houses and the dry fuel store and uh, the pump houses can't be replicated as the tidal range here is much lower than that at uh, Hinkley Point C, but they, they still serve the same purpose. And the dry fuel store is, is a direct replication, just in a different relative location on, on, on the site. And so, as we've already mentioned, the proposed power station will be located within the Suffolk Coast and Heaths AONB um, and also use some triple SI land for construction. So were any alternative sites considered for the proposed development? Well, uh, um, so 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 the, um, th that that was for the government to uh, to consider actually in, in putting together the uh, the policy statement uh, for new nuclear in, in in the first place. That they they considered a whole number of different different alternative uh, lo locations, and you know we ended up with uh, relatively few uh, sites that they deemed as being strategically or potentially suitable for new nuclear subject to. You know, to local and detailed detailed studies, and I think the policy statement makes it really clear that that none of those uh, sites that that have been identified as being strategically suitable, um, subject to those local studies, um, are alternatives to one another. So, so, so no. And so, you, you mentioned the triple SI. Um, so, it was recognised at that at that time that um, development at, uh, at 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 Sizewell is likely to require you know land take from 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 Sizewell marshes. Um, so you know it, it's it, that's really felt to us to to be able to demonstrate um, that we've done everything we can to uh, to limit that as far as as far as possible. And I think um, you know I mean I mean that's I, I think that's recognised by um, you know by a number of our our stakeholders uh, now actually. Um, so um, that that's that's where that's where we are. And um, so I, I think as far as um, as far as the permanent um, sort of land take is concerned, I, I think we're now looking. Well, I say I think um, I, we, we, our, our estimate is an up is a is a is a is a permanent land take of um, of a little under uh, six six hectares. Um, so um, we've we've really made that as tight as we can, mainly in order to um, to assimilate the the space needed to build the power station it's, itself. And and uh, 
Um, and then, you know, we've uh, we've looked really hard then at, um, at our construction methods and so on in order to um, to really uh, limit as, as far as possible the temporary land take um, that would be necessary in order to construct the power station as well. So all of that is, is you know, has been examined in, in, in detail over the last uh, over the last few months. Um, yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, just to just to say as well, I think, um, you know, na- National Policy Statement 6 was built on that strategic siting assessment that government had undertaken uh, possibly now what uh, nearly 13 14 years ago uh, they identified uh, potentially suitable sites for new nuclear power stations to be developed but was very much an understanding that it would then be for developers to bring forward proposals and to you know confirm that these were suitable sites and of course that's the uh, uh, the process that we have been going through uh, now, and um, you know, we will uh, we will of course have a determination on uh, whether or not you know Sizewell C has been deemed by the examining authority to be worthy of that development consent. But we we do feel we have made a, a very good case. Um, what types of new habitats are being created as part of the Sizewell C project, and what are some of the main challenges in delivering these habitats? Um, okay, so a number of different types of, uh, of, of habitats, but they're all all, all sort of um, all, all in all, all um, under the sort of auspices, if you like, of the, uh, of, the of the main vision, if, if you like, for um, for the for the project. Which is uh, there's been quite a lot of talk you know, already in, in this conversation around um, you know where, where we where, where Sizewell is, and uh, you know and how special that landscape is, and. Uh, you know the the landscape, uh, the really special bits of, of landscape in the in the area is, is something called Sandlings uh, Sandlings Heath, which is like a patchwork quilt of uh, kind of heathland and grassland and scrub and marshland. It's a beautiful place, and uh, it used to be really really quite extensive. You know, stretching all the way from you know sort of Ipswich in the south all the way up to sort of lowest often in the north. Really, sadly, um, you know, um, only a small proportion of, of that now now remains, and those are. Uh, protected in in designations like 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 Minsmere and and, and Sidewell Marshes that we've that we've mentioned. So our vision basically is to uh, restore that landscape within our control within our estate because um, a lot of that a lot of that habitat was taken out for uh, uh, so called improved um, for 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 agriculture after the Second World War. So so our our vision really is where we can is to restore that landscape um, and to uh, re-establish uh, those sorts of uh, those sorts of habitats and so. You know that's what we've been kind of busy doing, but within that, there were particular things, particular features, uh, particularly particular kind of subsets, if you like, of, of of habitat as stepping stones towards that that vision that we need to we need to put in place in order to um, you know to, to mitigate some of some of you know the the impacts associated with construction. So there are different themes, if you like, that have been um, that have been developed in certain areas in order to mitigate the impacts on reptiles, for example, on, uh, on, on marsh harrier foraging, on, on, on water voles, all, all sorts of things. But they, but they all form part of that overall vision going forward. So, um, so there'll be, you know, temporary um, sort of management to, to meet those sort of mitigation sort of requirements in the short term, but working towards that long term sort of vision of, of that restorative um, sort of sandlings reestablishment across the, across the estate. 
And Stephen, can you tell us a bit about Althurst Farm and why it was created and kind of what was the key objective for the scheme? I, I could talk to you all day about Althurst Farm, to be honest. <laughs> it's a fantastic uh, place, I think, if I say so myself. And I think a lot of people, it's, it, it, you know, it's amazing, um, um, you know, uh, that, that um, you know, it's on the doorstep of Leyston. But um, I, I'm sure half the people in, 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 in Leyston haven't, haven't actually got the message uh, yet. So we're working hard to make sure they do get that. That 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 message. It's um so it's a former arable farm. It's quite a quite a big place, sixty seven hectares or so, and um it was it was um it was farmed with an inch of its life basically. It was very intensively uh, farmed, and uh, so um, it sits right next door to this marsh we talked about a few times, Sizewell Marshes. It's um it's it's, it's the upper end of the of, of the valley basically that um, that feeds that that marsh, and it was originally in the low lying bits in the middle. It would have originally been part of that. That, that marshland basically so we've um, we've re-established that 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 marshland um, so that wetland in the lower lying uh, land by excavating out the material that has been sort of as um as, uh, has settled in over the years I suppose and it was also drained so we've um we've re-established that 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 marshland by re-exposing the the, the groundwater basically and created uh, yeah, about six hectares of uh, fantastic wetland, which um, you know, it's not an easy thing. Well, it's, it's easy on one level, but it's but it's quite tricky in another. You look at a wetland, it just looks like a wetland, I suppose, really. But um, there's an awful lot of design thinking that's gone into it to make it the best possible wetland it can be to maximise the biodiversity interest it can it can support really. And um, I won't bore you with the details of that, but it's all about balance between you know the the reed beds and the water and the depth of the water and the slopes of the of the of, of of those wetland areas and so on and um that was um a fantastic piece of work that was done collaboratively um with a number of our stakeholders but you know really i mean the you know people like um the local wildlife trust and the rspb made such a difference in um in in you know in in in, in really getting the best out of those designs and um and they also worked with us to kind of uh, the wildlife trust in particular to um to maximize that biodiversity sort of um benefit as quickly as possible um, so we um, we had to plant by hand. I forget how many now, but thousands and thousands of uh, of, of reeds once the thing had been habitats had been created. And uh, but um, but and so that was great. Um, but um, but we also um, uh, took the advice of the of the wildlife trust to harvest um, material that was being collected from ditches within neighbouring triple SIs, which were full of all sorts of wildlife and plants and invertebrates and all sorts of things and we um we, we spread that across those uh th- those wetlands and so a lot of what you see there now that isn't reed bed it came from that really so wildlife is absolutely flourishing there but in addition to the um in addition to those wetlands um we've uh we've we, we, we've 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 started creating that that sanglings heath we've, we've talked about which is coming along really really nicely we've taken uh we've taken uh we've harvested material from uh from neighbouring reserves again, spread that around, and so heather is growing um, where onions were only a few years ago, which is quite extraordinary on arable land as quickly as that. But it's not all about wildlife; it's all about it's also about people. It's connecting people with wildlife. Actually, we all know how important that is for our mental health and so on. Particularly, you know, going through the period we all have been through. So we brought the the Suffolk coast to the doorsteps of Leyston. Actually, so it's connecting landscapes, connecting people to landscapes, and connecting those designations. That that's really what it what it does. It's part of that patchwork quilt uh, we, we've talked about a few times. So um, yeah, we're not there yet. Um, it, it's, it'll be under conservation management for 
forever, um, really. The wetlands develop very quickly. Um, we have, um, you know, we have uh, we have marsh harriers there now. Our own marsh harriers. Uh, you don't need to go to Minsmere anymore to to see them if you um, if you don't wish to. And um, but the, the you know the terrestrial stuff will take uh, will take uh, will take longer. And um, I'm, and we're hoping you will put in some fantastic access. Uh, arrangements and really high quality footpaths and circular routes and open do- open uh, recreation areas so people can you know it's a legacy for for people as well as for as well as for wildlife how did you ensure that the construction phase of the altar scheme did not have a negative impact on the surrounding environment and existing wildlife it was quite easy, actually, because um, it was uh, an arable farm, um, as I've mentioned. So there wasn't an awful lot of wildlife there, to be honest. Um, um, there was a, you know, a few snakes clinging on around the edges. There a couple of, uh, you know, a few a very small population of water voles um, at the bottom end where the sewage works out for uh, was actually. Um, and um, so um, we obviously had to uh, take precautions to uh, to avoid impacts to to those uh, to those animals, but um, uh, no, there wasn't much in the way of, uh, of of constraints, if you like, on on site. Um, um, th- I think the main constraint probably was, well, certainly was the um, was the triple SI uh, right next door, and so um, in order to create the uh, the wetlands, we had to uh, we had to dewater. We were talking about dewatering for our main excavations earlier on, so there were kind of shallow dewatering we had to do in order to uh, create the the profiles uh, for these. Um, for these for these wetlands, you couldn't just do it underwater. We needed confidence that um, we were going to deliver that those benefits that we that we wanted. So we needed that assurance. So um, so we had to dewater, and so there's quite a lot of work carried out to um, to make sure that we wouldn't affect that water balance even temporarily of the of the of the site next door. And operationally, it sounds a, a little bit perverse because uh, we've taken an arable farm and converted it into some fa- fantastic wetlands. But it theoretically, and this is the lens we have to go to on a project like this, to be honest. And that, uh, that and that's a good thing, you know. Um, theoretically, um, you know, in a in a hot, dry summer with all of these fantastic sort of reeds um, where there used to be, you know, arable crops, um, they 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 will, you know, respire um, and. Uh, and they could potentially, you know, reduce um, the amount of uh, water uh, that would otherwise have um, uh, had, 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 had entered the downstream sizewell marshes. So potentially, you know, potentially um, constraining that that sort of water supply for the marshes by creating fantastic ha- habitat upstream. And so, um, as a belt and braces sort of precautionary approach, we've um, we've installed a very very deep borehole. Uh, within the site, um, which is uh, linked to some uh, fancy sort of uh, monitoring gadgets, so that if and when, and it's never happened yet, and it's unlikely to happen actually, I say it's belt and braces, but if and when, you know, we have a really, you know, a really, really dry, uh, dry summer, for example, really dry, I mean, it's always dry in Suffolk, but particularly dry one, then um, this borehole will kick in and will top up uh, water levels in, in the ditch. Um, so you know, that's, that's something, that's the kind of measures really that we've, uh, that we've in, that we've introduced in you know in, in in consultation with our stakeholders to provide that comfort. And since the site was established, uh, what impact has it had in terms of attracting wildlife? So it's surprisingly uh, quick. I mean, wildlife does tend to know where when there's an opportunity at, at hand, really. So uh, I think we mentioned water bowls be- before. We've created fantastic habitat for waterfalls. So um, you know, there's been uh, there's been an explosion of waterfall populations within the site, which is a, which is a, which is a, which is a good thing. There's lots of stuff you can't see actually that that's supporting all of the wildlife that is more obvious. So uh, we talked about some of the measures we 
we use to uh, to maximise the biodiversity value, these uh, you know harvested material that we brought on site. So they bring with them all sorts of biodiversity, um, you know, bugs and and invertebrates and um, all sorts of plant life, particularly with the aquatic stuff. So all of that stuff is is there and, and thriving actually. Um, and so um, so what you see actually are the sort of top predators, if you like, that are more obvious. And it's it's fantastic that they've been attracted so soon. It just shows how. How, how well those those habitats are maturing so we've had uh we've had breeding marsh harriers which are you know we're down to a single breeding pair in the uk only uh, 20 or 30 years ago uh we've had two pairs actually um on these breed beds within uh you know within five years of their creation um so a, a wide range of water birds um bearded tits in particular um you know nicety i suppose really um quite distinctive um on the dry land you know we have uh we have uh you know, hares and and ground nesting birds and so on so there's um there's, there's a way to go but um but but i think um i think nature's making uh making it uh it their new home for, for sure um and uh our, our challenge is to um you know is to is, is to is to keep that momentum going and to and to and to keep 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 that those management practices pointing in the right direction we talked about the the trust earlier on and that's one of the things that'll be helping us to do so uh how are you monitoring and measuring biodiversity across the project blimey that's a that's a that's a very uh that's a very good question actually so th- this i think this bit of suffolk is probably the most scrutinized bit of uh, land <laughs> kind of anywhere really um so we've been we've been busy counting things and monitoring things um all, all sorts of uh all sorts of things from um you know detailed ecological surveys um to you know environmental surveys that that that, that inform the, the quality of the habitats that that, that those um, that those uh, sort of animals you know in, in, inhabit really um, uh, for for years uh, actually so we, we've had to do that in order to uh, develop the sort of evidence um, for setting sort of baselines if you like we call it in the you know, sort of baseline assessments which is a really important step in in the environmental assessment program that we've uh, that we've gone with that we've gone through in order to have confidence you know around around the, around those um those assessment sort of outcomes you know we've talked about models and things it's, you know it informs all of all of that sort of thinking really and and, so, and some of those uh, some of those surveys uh, have been really really crucial to the design of our sort of mitigation strategies so um you know what we, we talked about habitats earlier on and uh, one of the key sort of uh, types of, um, of of sort of habitat that we've created is is to replace some you know some potential lost foraging resource from uh, marsh areas um, and, um, and, and, that, and that, that habitat's been designed through surveys uh, to understand accurately um, what um, you know what 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 value uh, should be ad- attached to to those resources that should be lost that we need to replicate so there's all of that um, is under our belt and that that basically is set to continue uh, go- going forwards and and that those monitoring programs are you know secured um, or would be secured. Uh, will be secured um, in the in the DCO and in something called the deed of obligation. Should we get um, should we get consent for size well C, and um, and an important and so there's a there's a number of different um, monitoring we call them um, monitoring and mitigation plans um, that that um, form part of uh, of that package of, uh, of of measures if you like that will be secured and and one of the important components of those measures is um, is is that this, the monitoring that will continue is. Um, Designed primarily to make sure that the impacts um, that, that 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 happen are within the the, the limits that we've assessed, uh, to make sure that you know mitigation is being uh, appropriately sort of deployed and is effective. But it's also to provide an early warning um, should 
in a near likely event there be any differences that emerge so that we can respond to those positively through um, you know beefing up our mitigation or tweaking our mitigation plans or basically additional mitigation should that be should that be necessary so um yeah it, it, it's quite a there's a wide range of, of, of different uh, of different of different measures but um but that if that, hopefully that gives you a flavor of it and you're expecting the project to deliver a net gain in biodiversity of 19 percent. Do you want to talk uh, to us a bit about that? Uh, sure. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's that's our expectation. It's not just our expectation, actually. It's um, you know, it's it's the it's 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 it, it, that's that's um, a measure that's that's based on current guidance that's issued by Natural England, basically, for assessing you know biodiversity net net gain of of, of projects like, like like ours. It's um it's not a currently a um a requirement if you like to, to do that, but it's um it's certainly best practice and it's what we've uh and we've obviously uh, you know embraced uh, embraced that. So there are metrics basically that are set out in in the methodology for assessing what uh what that what that is and so that's been that's been that's basically been been applied um sort of piece by piece, you know, across the across the project both both within the uh, what we call the main development site, where the power station would sit, as well as the what we call the associated development, so um, you know the uh, the transport facilities and and so on um, that would be uh, required to to construct the power station. And so, in essence, uh, um, all of the land that we require temporarily for construction, where possible, would be restored to something better than it is at the moment from a biodiversity point of view. So we talked about Sandlings Heath, a lot of a lot of it certainly within the main development site. Will be um, will be um, will be restored to, uh, to 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 that type of of habitat, and you can imagine that's that's um, you know that's that's likely to be beneficial. <laughs> you don't need to be an expert in ecology to know that that's likely to be an improvement around over sort of the arable land, intensively farmed arable land that exists at the moment. I, th- I think it's worth pointing out that you know we've we've mentioned on this call about you know um, some small land land take and avoid unavoidable unavoidable land take from sizewell marshes so um so things like that are excluded from the calculation so the new wetland we've talked about at oldhurst farm that's excluded from from that uh, from that calculation quite quite rightly so but what's also excluded from that calculation are a lot of the other beneficial things that we are doing actually to maximize biodiversity i mentioned earlier on you know some of the you know package of measures that would be delivered uh, by the dco and and uh, and this deed of obligation that sits along side it if we were to get consent and uh you know there is uh there is uh, uh a number of uh of funds that have been created within uh, within that deed of obligation for um you know environmental and ecological sort of betterment there's a natural environment fund uh which is uh, which is included which um will you know stretch widely across across the aomb um to deliver benefits to to mitigate and compensate for impacts that we've uh that we would have uh, um, from from the project, and uh, and there's also in in that fund, um, you know, a number of measures in the marine environment, for example, for um, improving uh, fish passage, like eel passage, um, into local reservoirs, uh, not, not not reservoirs. So, what am I talking about? Into local rivers, into local estuaries, by uh, dealing with existing constraints and making those um, making those estuaries uh, um, more permeable again to those sorts of migratory fish. So. There are a number of uh, beneficial um, uh, measures um, that are included in that package that aren't actually included in the biodiversity net gain calculation, which is, you know, therefore, you know, it's um, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a measured 
I would say, conservative sort of assessment of what those benefits uh, are likely to be. And Tom, can you give us an idea of some of the work you're doing around embodied carbon and operational carbon across the project? And if you have any kind of detail around the carbon footprint for for the project? Well, we certainly do. I mean, we we recognise and we're asked by stakeholders, as you can imagine, to to consider the carbon impacts of the construction of Sizeable C, uh, given that, uh, you know, we, we often talk about uh, the advantages of new nuclear um, in the sense of providing safe, low-carbon electricity that will help uh, deliver uh, the net-zero economy. So recognising, obviously, that all of that steel and concrete will, of course, um, have an environmental impact. In, in uh, Last year, we commissioned a very detailed analysis of the carbon emissions that would be associated with the project. And that's the full life cycle of the Sizeable C power station from the start of construction to the end of decommissioning. And it measures an array of impacts, but including the carbon impact per kilowatt hour of electricity generated by Sizeable C. And, uh, you know, this was a very robust methodology and the assessment was independently verified by a third party. And the results of the analysis summarise that the carbon emissions associated with sizable C would be approximately about six grams of carbon per kilowatt hour of electricity generated. Uh, now that is right up there with with offshore wind, um, and that means that sizable C, given that it will be generating you know three point two gigawatts of electricity, uh, will offset the emissions associated with its construction, um, which would take between ten to twelve years within five months of becoming operational. Now that's and it's also worth bearing in mind that assesses not just it's it's an assessment of day one of construction through to the final day of decommissioning, and in between that, of course, you've got sixty potentially eighty years of generating enough electricity to power about six million homes. So we uh, that support that that report has been uh, been uh, published. Um, we submitted it um, in response to questions from. Uh, the examining authority who have been uh, looking over the um, the application, examining the application on behalf of the planning inspectorate. And so with that in mind, when do you expect the planning inspectorate to reach a decision on the proposals for the project? And while you're awaiting that decision, what is the, the kind of core focus for the project? The examination period uh, finishes at midnight. That's Thursday, uh, the the 14th of October. So from that date, the um, examining uh, panel and uh, the planning inspectorate has uh, has three months in which to make a recommendation uh, on its findings and submit its reports to the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Kwasi Kwerteng. And um, that recommendation, therefore, will arrive with him in mid-January. And then the Secretary of State has a further three months in which to announce the decision uh, on the basis of uh, that recommendation report. So our focus during this period of time I think certainly for Steve and his colleagues in the planning team will be to have a bit of a break for a little while. Um, and it, But in the meantime, locally, things don't stop. We have actually been doing a lot of work um, around um, building up our um, 
focus on 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 investment and work with uh, local further education colleges in particular and uh, driving up um, uh, the apprenticeship opportunities with potential tier one suppliers we have always proceeded on the basis that we are submitting an application a set of proposals that we want to see delivered and we are planning for delivery and we want local people to have every opportunity to get the skills the qualifications necessary to work on this project so we're doing a lot of work in places like lower stuff like ipswich uh, last week we were in west suffolk at bury st edmunds working with the uh, with, with the college there and signing a memorandum of understanding on the courses that will be made available and the opportunities available to people of all ages and people who want to you know transfer who may have transferable skills that they want to bring um and and, and to work on 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 the potential uh, development site so lots of work going on there and even today there is actually uh, just outside um, uh, Ipswich there's a, um, uh, a large conference taking place um, for potential local food and drink suppliers to the project so if you like fueling the size we'll see workforce because we do want to see local producers. We want to see local food and drink on the plates in front of the people who will be building this. So we've been looking at that opportunity. So quite a big conference on the go at the moment and an opportunity to discuss uh, how they can all, like, you know, pool resources, work as a potential Suffolk larder, if you like, a consortium that can bring its wares uh, to uh, what will be a demand for, I mean, anything around like, you know, six to 8,000 meals a day uh, at the peak of construction. So uh, we really just want to now focus on if this is to go ahead, we make sure that the opportunities are experienced locally to the maximum effect. And that's what we'll be working on locally over the next few months. Looking ahead, subject to the project gaining the relevant approvals to proceed, what do you hope will be the long-term legacy for Sizewell C in terms of the way that nuclear projects can be delivered sensitively and coexist with the environment? I think, I, I would hope um, that, I think, based on some of the things that we've been doing, uh, groundbreaking things, actually, that we've been doing, that we've been talking about um, t t today, I, I, I hope we, we will be, you know, setting the bar, I, I suppose, for, um, for, similar, for similar major projects. Um, I, I, I think, I hope we would be seen as an exemplar uh, going, going forwards. And, uh, you know, I think that can only be a, a, good, a good thing. That's all we have time for today. Thanks so much to uh, you both for joining us. Uh, we look forward to the planning inspectorate sharing its decision, and we will definitely be following the project's progress over the coming years. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organizations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash the Engineers Collective.